All right, uh, let me collect my thoughts. I already did all my prayers, like I said last time. I do them in advance. And um, I usually start with all my disclaimers, you know, about the cicadas, so I can't do anything about this noise. And um, I didn't have the easiest night last night, so I'm a bit, I'm a bit you know, down. Um, okay, let's see, do I have anything else to say? Mm, no, I think we can begin. Welcome, everybody. And um, let me see in one second if I can split the screen so I can see if anything happens on uh, YouTube, too. And uh, this is our second encounter on this presentation on uh, Pranayama, the Agodia perspective on Pranayama. Now, by Gaudiya perspective, I mean that most of what's said about pranayama is in uh, yogic terms, and yoga has a very specific goal, and um, it's not necessarily a devotional one. There is mention of Bhagawan and devotion and God in uh, in yoga, but um, I just wanted to. Um, give it not a Gaudiya spin, just um, like I said last time, the goal of these um, classes that Padmanabh Maharaj is asking me to give originally for next time if he wants to ask, if, he, if he's going to ask me again, I'll probably choose a more, you know, Vaishnav Gaudiya focused uh, theme and just uh, do like everybody else is doing. But what was important for me is also to address this mentality and attitude that uh, I perceive sometimes in the Western uh, Vaishnav community, and even in the Indian one, of like um, absolutism or the very categorical in there. This is this, this, this is like this, this is not like that. And um, in my estimation, uh, there's nothing more flexible, more open-minded than a Gaudiya Vaishnav. A spiritualist in general is, uh, you know, sh should be someone who doesn't see things in terms of black and white. But a Gaudiya Vaishnav is, um, should be particularly open-minded. A spiritualist in general should be focused on themes and realities such as the absolute, the eternal, the infinite the infinite so you know human nature at the same time is such that we tend to focus on on other things on like relativity well if it's like this how can it be like that so my attempt is to just chip at this um, callosity that i perceive is formed in the mentality and attitude of, of many vaishnavs not because i'm qualified for it but it's something I feel strongly about. And um, now, I don't mean to advocate a Kanishtadikari um, approach either. Like, you know, a beginner spiritualist will very much behave like everything goes, everything is fine, it's all spiritual. And then, as most of you know, uh, Madhya Madhikari is somebody who is more able to discriminate. Wait a second, this is not, um, not everything is spiritual, not in the same way, not at the same time or at the same level of advancement. But I do perceive this, this um, how would you say, in the name of the highest goal because we do have a very, very lofty goal. It's uh, beyond ego-effacing, which is common to many spiritual paths. We have a very specific goal. Um, you know, if we want to talk about negative numbers or and positive numbers, we don't only want to reach the zero from this realm of negative numbers that is not our turf, it's not the level of the frequency of consciousness that we belong there is a positive number realm and within that we're very specific in our goal uh, which is braja bhakti so not to beat about the bush it's um 
not only acknowledging, it's a way to not only acknowledge God and the higher power and the fact that, you know, acknowledge consciousness to become conscious of ourselves, our body and the dynamics of material energy and spiritual energy, and to acknowledge that there is a personhood to the divine, but then we want to get deeper and deeper into God's inner absorption, what he cares about in his um, omnipotence and omnipresence and, and uh, omniscience, what he does, and it turns out that he likes to play. To He is, um, what is that thing called? Cosplay? <laughs> he likes to, to, to impersonate. Well, he likes to be personified. Like we said last time, the absolute is just as personal as impersonal. And that's something we need to wrap our minds around to begin with. So... We see that God likes to feel and behave like he's a, a child and a cowboy who has friends, who has girlfriends, who has parents and all kinds of things happening. Just like we used to do, at least in my childhood uh, uh, memories, during recess, I'd be a princess and you would come and save me and then you would say this and you would say that. Meanwhile, it was just a bunch of kids in the courtyard of a school. Uh, but th they were really vivid moments. There was the studying, there was the awareness that I'm a schoolboy, you're a schoolgirl, you're another schoolboy. But then what we really, what got us really ticking was the moment of recess, that one hour that included eating and then just running around and playing and imagining things. So God does the same. And our goal is to have a place in God's drama, in God's daydream of sort. And which is a wonderful thing and a unique thing that I don't see um, offered in any other spiritual movement or, or, or school of thought. So, as wonderful as it is, it pains me to see this very, you know, calcifying mentality and attitude in a community of Gaudiya Vaishnavs when they say things like I was saying last time, they demonize. A Vaishnav doesn't demonize. They should Krishnaize, which is actually a term that Prabhupada used. A Vaishnav sees the summum bonum, the ultimate goal in everything, even in the, the, the simplest things around them, because their consciousness vibrates at a higher level. Ultimately, to become Krishna conscious means to vibrate at the same frequency that not only God, but Krishna vibrates. So, you know, to be liking what he likes, disliking what he dislikes, etc. So, um, so I was saying it pains me to see certain attitudes like, oh, we don't do, in this case, pranayama, or oh yeah, astrology, or this, or that. The truth is that, I'm sorry for the long uh, introduction, but, you know, it, it's all part of the same talk. The truth is that we are not that tight, essentialist community of Gaudiya Vaishnavas that was, I don't know, 100 years ago in pilgrimage sites like Mayapur, Vrindavan, where people would leave their family and lives to exclusively dedicate themselves to a life of bhajan. The community, for better or for worse, the Gaudiya Vaishnav community, especially worldwide, has kind of uh, relaxed and gotten comfortable compared to the years during Prabhupada's movement when, you know, it was in one sense kind of artificial, like the person who was a hippie one month ago, now they're like hardcore preachers, and but such was, you know, the extent of Prabhupada's energy and uh, charisma, because that that's what he was concerned with. That was his sense of urgency. So everybody got sucked in it. So there were a lot of brahmacharis, there were a lot of couples, but there were like grihasta brahmacharis, as Prabhupada, um, the term that he coined. I remember when I joined uh, my Guru Maharaj's mission, Srila Tripurari Maharaj's mission in um, 96, that there was a magazine, and I joined from Italy, there was a magazine in the States called, well, whatever it was called, I think it was the Krishna Culture Catalog, 
And at the end, there were ads for exorcisms or brahmanas offering their services for, uh, you know, all the samskaras, for the babies. And I was like, wait a minute, we've become a religion. We're not a group of spiritualists anymore. Um, and like I said, for better or for worse, is it bad per se? Is it good per se? It's just the way it's become. We're more relaxed in our pursuit because, as Sridhar Maharaj says, where connotation increases, denotation decreases. When denotation increases, connotation decreases. So in other words, quantity versus quality. We are many, many more than we used to be years ago. And so, I don't want to say the quality, but, you know, the intensity of our focus has relaxed a little bit. And, you know, we have brahmacharis and sannyasis with laptops and bank accounts and, uh, you know, they're all on social media. On account of that, why demonize certain things? Oh, we don't do that. We, you know, why look down on anything when you could be like, I usually joke about that to myself, not like I discuss these things with anybody. But you know how a lot of Christians in, in the U.S., they have these like wristbands or, 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 you know, a little ribbon where their badge hangs or a, a bunch of keys that have WWJD, what would Jesus do? Which is, I guess, a good way of, uh, you know, reminding yourself how to behave throughout the day. And I usually ask myself, would Rupa Goswami do this? Would Madhavendra Puri do this? I don't see Rupa Goswami going, ah, we don't do this. Ah. You know, they were always very meek, very accommodating. Again, in an Uttamadhikari way, not in a Kanishtadhikari way. So they weren't just naive and thinking, everybody's fine, everything is good, everything goes. But they were making this effort, not, not even effort, the, the level of their absorption and consciousness was such that they were seeing the common ground, which is Krishna and the love he represents, the good, the wonderfulness that he represents, the absolute that he is. He is the common ground and a substratum. So it would be good to see the world through Krishna's eyes. That was a big introduction. So um, pranayama is just one of the topics I chose because of a few realizations I had in, in a few over a few months in the past and um, and it's just a, an excuse to just talk about Krishna consciousness it just sounded better than naming the this um, series of four encounters Shamasundra is talking about Krishna consciousness yeah right I'm really the least qualified in terms of personal example and knowledge I do have some insights by the mercy of, <laughs> of of everybody, my guru and Krishna, and just um, I don't know my previous karma, and that probably makes me see things in a certain way. But that's about it. Now, talking about pranayama, um, this encounter is about the the physicality of pranayama, and um, in one sense the negative side. So. The reason why the Gaudiya Vaishnavas and, and Acharyas look down to it as a distraction, etc., etc. If time allows, I'll be talking about all this stuff. You see, as much as, as I gave the, this introduction, sorry, I'm distracted by this ultrasonic cicada. I hope it's not too distracting for you guys, too. So, as much as I gave this introduction, I feel some kind of guilt for talking about physical stuff like pranayama and we'll be de uh, de discussing all the uh, qualities of prana, the, 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 not the qualities, the, the types of prana, what it does to the body, etc, etc. But like I said last time, it's good to know what it is we're talking about so that we can talk about it further. Okay, pranayama means um, stretching of prana is one translation. It's not breath control. That is a good point to make. It's not about breath control. To understand what pranayama is, we need to understand what prana is. And I need to drink, I'm sorry. Prana is um, energy. Essentially, it's the energy that pervades the material world. It's the potential 
just like, you know, fire is contained in wood. So there is energy that can be gotten out of everything, that just pervades everything. But it needs to be mm, tapped from, if that's how you use that verb. In other words, you need, we need to be able to mm, know the key, know the method to absorb that energy. Now this prana, by the way, prana is, uh, it appears a lot in our songs and prayers, pranadhana, gopi pranadhana, madan manohar, we say in the song um, commonly known as Jashomati Nandan, gopi pranadhana, even if there's an extra A for meter, gopi pranadhana, it means, it's translated as the life and soul of the gopis, prana dhana. Literally, prana means vital force and dhana means treasure. So, Krishna is the life and treasure of the gopis. So, prana is really what holds your body together. What, when it leaves the body, although all the ingredients are there, uh, you don't consider the person alive. Of course, it, you know, the soul is also the 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 dynamo of this kind of energy. But I mean to say that a body is also um, a source of prana. Not a dead body, per se. <laughs> but, um, so let's see what prana comes from. You could get prana from sunlight, for example, or just cosmic influence. I remember when my mother was um, sick with, with cancer, I was reading all sorts of books. And uh, one of them was about this Canadian lady who was um, diagnosed with fifth-level cervical uh, cancer, and she put herself in the hands of an um, Indian doctor who had her fast. By the way, I'm not recommending any of these practices, but uh, it just so happens that this guy had her at first eat raw fruit and vegetables, then just juiced, then strained juice, and then just water with molasses for minerals and water with um, sea salt and then just water charged by sunlight. She would put a, a bottle of water in the sun to just absorb the prana of the sun and um, in order to kind of like um, wash away the, the cancer and whatever was um, toxic in her body. So that struck me. Also my Ayurvedic doctor at one point told me that for my metabolism, for my, the kind of, uh, yeah, for my dos doshas and the way they are, rather than fasting, I should boil water for 20 minutes, put it in a thermos, and sip it, sip it every hour or something. And I was like, what does it matter if boil, if you boil water for one minute or 20 minutes? So my only explanation, I didn't ask her, but it's that, it would absorb the prana of fire. The, the five elements in and of themselves are source and vehicle of, of prana. So, um, you know, good water. Water, by the, as, a, as, a, as a side point, I've seen researches of, like, you know, alternative scientists discovering or, or, or approaching water as a liquid crystal, like melted ice. <laughs> And uh, they say that water is like um, a computer, like a quartz-based computer, but it's, um, it's a very peculiar substance, which is why when you do achaman, you infuse a mantra in water and then you sip it. Or when you like make a toast to health, you invoke health into the liquid and then you drink it. But anyway, this is a side point. So good water uh, has, uh, like fresh running water has prana. And then sunlight the earth has prana, could, could be a vehicle of prana. You, you could see yogis that just bury themselves and they just absorb prana through the, um, the, the land, the, the earth itself. Our own body can be a vehicle of prana, like when we touch, what, you know, if you hurt yourself, you put your hand there to use your own prana to heal. Prana is this vital force and healing force. Um, and like I said, the, the actual body is prana. If you think of a carrot, a, an organic carrot that you just plucked, you would intuitively know and think that it has more prana than a carrot 
that was grown mm, conventionally and that's been sitting on a shelf for two weeks. Now, does it mean that prana means vitamins? Does it mean that prana means photons through uh, the sunlight? It's, it's correlated. It corresponds to the presence of vitamins, of um, hydration, of uh, cosmic radiations, but it doesn't mean that per se. Just like breath is not prana in and of itself, like pranayama of all these ways of absorbing prana, you could have good food, but can you have good food all the time? Do you eat all the time? Do you touch the ground all the time? Etc. Etc. It stands to reason that breathing, with this, which is something we do at every second or every minute, if you're a yogi, you can just breathe in and out only once a minute, is admittedly the easiest and most available way to absorb prana. So. Uh, and that's why it's advocated and, uh, and talked about. So pranayama means stretching of the prana because we talked about last time about uh, breathing in and out, how everybody's life lives is, uh, everybody's life is uh, measured in breaths. So it stands to reason that if you make your breaths longer and longer, let's say if you only have a hundred breaths available in one lifetime, you would stretch your life uh, length by breathing uh, slower. But there are more and more considerations that um, justify this idea of stretching breath. So pranayama means stretching of um, breath or in a way subjugating, not subjugating, absorption of this prana. So you breathe in and then you absorb the prana and then you breathe out by the mechanics of our body. And um, five types of prana are described when it comes to pranayama, uh, when it comes to... Um, I'm sorry, is uh, Sakirati saying something? No, I get distracted by any blinking. No, okay, sorry. Um, what was I saying? So when it comes to absorbing prana as pranayama through breathing, um, there are five uh, vayus, they're called. Vayu means wind. And uh, so, yeah, when prana is absorbed through air, uh, these types of prana are called vayus. So we're going to talk about the technicalities of that for a while. Uh, in the Vedas, you, uh, five types are acknowledged. Prana itself is the air coming in. It's called ascending prana, uh, counterintuitively, because when you breathe in, the, the air goes in. Um, and yes, it, it's, uh, it goes down, but it's called ascending prana. But it's the prana involved with assimilate, not assimilating, taking in, um, so for all intents and purposes, in the, in, the, in the context of breathing, it means inhaling, inhalation. And then, again, vayu means wind, so what's the difference between air and wind? It's the movement. That's why in the Vedas it is said that there's a vayu that moves the, the planets around, which sounds like ridiculous, ridiculous or simplistic. Yeah, right, planets are moved by wind. The Vedas don't know. Uh, it means movement, like I said. Uh, wind means air in movement, and and um, all these pranas inside the body are um, uh, concerning different movements and uh, yeah, movements in our body. I like to make a little side point about this approach to the Vedas because it's another topic I feel strongly about. It um, I see among the devotees a literalist approach of like, whatever the Vedas say, it must be right, it must be true, and I need to beat people over the head about this point or this view. And then there's the overly, what would you call it, uh, preaching um, approach. So, talking about planets, since we were talking of that, 
some things I will never be able to explain myself. Like the Vedas say the fleas are born out of sweat. Okay. Um, but in general, the attitude we should have with the scriptures is one of humility, <laughs> period, of being children. You know, there's the, the name Vedamata, the concept of Vedamata, the Vedas are our mother. So any child who thinks they know better than their mothers, who know what the child will go through and what is going to say and how they're going to behave, is just childish. And um, it's, it's important that whenever the Vedas say something weird, we just first of all take a step back and just accept it. It must be true at some level. It's me who doesn't understand it. It's me who hasn't quite understood. Or, or doesn't know. And I'm going to show um, in a few minutes how pranayama, what was said in a few aphorisms in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and all the scriptures about yoga and breathing and everything, they sound so reductive, simplistic or fantastical, like the, the sun channel and the moon channel. And then science catches up and Dem and, and uh, demonstrates or shows what the Vedas had been saying and all along with a few words or a different vernacular than what we're used to in scientific terms. I'll make another example. Imagine we are at the mall. Now, there's a mixed audience here from all over the world, but everybody knows what a mall is, a shopping center. Most shopping centers have a, um, a map of the place, which is vertical, and it shows the first floor, the second floor, and, um, you know, it's hard to, to explain with words, but suppose we want to go to J.C. Penney's, which is a, what is J.C. Penney? It's just a department store. They sell everything. And um, all the businesses are showed on, shown on this map, uh, as squares or with whatever shape they have. And I could easily say to a friend of mine, oh, look, JCPenney is here, right above McDonald's. Now, is JCPenney uh, JC above McDonald's? No, it's next to it. On the map, it looks like above, because the map is vertical. It's two-dimensional instead of three-dimensional. And... Um, but my friend has no problem understanding what I'm saying. J.C. Penney's is on top of McDonald's, and there is a big 50 number on McDonald's and a 51 number on J.C. Penney's. But then we go there and we see that J.C. Penney's is here, McDonald's is on the right, and there's no 50 or 51. It was just a representation that made sense to two people who had the same um, context, linguistic context. So. I'm saying this because I just remembered the usual debate about the Vedas saying that the sun is closer than the moon to us and, and people get, getting all confused. How can the Vedas say that? And then, um, you know, some people would um, just believe it, just say that science is wrong, it's a conspiracy and they don't know, they cannot measure properly. And then you have the other extreme when they say, Oh, it just means that the influence of the sun is more important because it makes vegetables grow or because it warms our planet or because uh, it, um, whatever, it's just more prominent in our, in our lives than the moon. Which is fine. It's what you can say to certain people who wouldn't understand any more or any better. But it could also explain in ways that for some reason when I explain it or when I mention devotees who explain it, I get these blank stares like they don't know what I'm talking about. Somehow it makes sense to me, but it's like the way you explain the cosmos with an astrolabe. So, sorry for the tangent, tangent, I'll go back to the original point. You know, the, the orbit of the sun is represented on a closer plane than the orbit of the moon in a way of representing the universe according to Vedic cosmography. So in that sense, the, the sun is closer than the moon. It's like saying J.C. Penney's is above or on top of uh, McDonald's. My generic point is that we should keep a humble stance when it comes to Vedic uh, statements. So when it comes to prana, 
it's described in, in these terms. Um, there is prana going in, and then there is prana going out, which means the exhalation, and it's all it's called apana, and it governs any uh, uh, expulsion, any uh, how do you say? Mm, uh, just anything that goes out. So, um, I, I, don't, I don't remember if it's all the examples, but like coughing, sneezing, burping, but also uh, urination, evacuation, menstruation, ejaculation, all this energy going out, it's uh, governed by this apana. Another movement or, or value or prana described is um, samana, so assimilation. And uh, now all these pranas have a seat in the body. So the apana is in the lower part of the body. The assimilation is in the stomach. So it's the movement that mm, that um, involves digestion. And also in the mental sphere, there's like this assimilation of an experience, just taking stuff in uh, and make use of it, just like digestion does in on the physical term. Then there's vyana, which is the... Um, all-pervasive prana, so it doesn't have a seat in and of itself, it's just a circulation, like the blood circulation, the lymphatic system, the bones, the connective tissue. It, you don't need to specify, that's why I said the Vedas just say, there's a prana that pervades the whole body, they don't need to say circulatory system, the lymphatic system. It will make sense on the physical level, even if you don't know you know, enzymes are called the fire in the body. The, you know, where agni presides in the body corresponds to the pancreas, the liver, the stomach, where all the digestion happens. So this sort of uh, language is used. And then there is uh, udana, which is, has, um, obviously, because it's the prana of um, communication. So, it's, uh, it's got to do with growth, like the thyroid uh, gov governs the growth in the body, and expression. And um, like I said last time, during my prayers before these classes, I pray that my voice, that my words are charged with uh, prana, because uh, sound vibration is also a vehicle of prana. You can hear the same words, the same speech from a person, from two people, but the one who has a feeling and a knowledge and an experience and, a, and a, you know, can convey this uh, energy in their words will have more of, a, of an impact because of the prana conveyed in those words. Um, so these are the, did I say them all? Prana, Upana, uh, Samana, Vyana and Udana. So, um, now in light of what I said at the beginning, because we have brahmacharis with bank accounts and laptops and profile and social media, is it that bad to have a generic understanding and knowledge of how our bodies uh, work? Like, um, you know, to me, since I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism, a lot of things started to make sense. Um, whatever, you know, the thyroid is connected with uh, communication. And so a afflicted thyroid has got to do with truths not said, such as being in the closet or holding a secret or being misunderstood. Every time you speak, you get interrupted. Like try to go to a lunch conversation here in Madhuvan. It's really hard to, you know, it feels like everybody wants to say their bit. And uh, it's like to, to find an opening for people with, um, you know, affliction at this area it's very very stressful doesn't mean i should be talking all the time but uh, i was just making a point of knowing one's body and the same applies to astrology you know in christianity it's said a lot that uh, in christianity they, they try to see astrology as a an enemy or something bad like no we believe in god and we trust god and we surrender to god we don't run by the by what astrology and horoscopes dictate there's some of that in our movement too but i mean it's true that jyotish which is vedic astrology is very predict not predictive it's more like um, the auspicious time to do this the auspicious time to do that and that shouldn't hinder our devotional sensibilities and approach to life like oh i'm supposed to do this uh, seva because you would 
you would imagine that a Vaishnava is always engaged in seva, but it's not the right time of the day, so I'm not going to do it. That's where, you know, we should be more firm and say, don't let astrology rule your life more than your seva to Krishna and Guru should. Or, um, so, is it that bad to know that, you know, I don't know, like we have our meetings here on Wednesday, because Wednesday is presided over by Mercury, who rules over communication, as opposed to Tuesday, ruled by Mars, which is very martial in its dealings. Like, we don't want our meetings to turn into a, a trial. Oh, actually, no, we used to have them on, on Wednesdays. Uh, now we have them on Fridays. Um, but my original point was on Wednesday because of that. So is it really that bad to have this sort of knowledge and um, sensibilities that we can apply to our material lives, given that we're no longer, if we ever were as a movement, so focused on the highest goal, which, which we should have, but we also have children and, and career and Netflix and, and, you know, and Facebook and whatnot. So it's, it's good to kind of develop horizontally and kind of know what ingredients we have around us, whether it's the benefits of breathing or, you know, knowing that, you know, if, if you want to have a manager, it's better to have a Capricorn, I don't know, as opposed, if you want to have an accountant, it's better to have a Virgo, that kind of knowledge. What's wrong with that? So that's why I understand the the mentality and the attitude behind cautioning against certain things but in the absolute way on a, on a more you know on the relative plane i think it's better to see how can i engage this whether it's astrology pranayama yoga whatnot history politics in a krishna conscious way like sridhar maharaj or like my guru maharaj was saying about sridhar maharaj he wasn't talking about the highest topics necessarily. He was talking about every day's mm, themes or like the devotees' struggles at a very physical or mental level, but from the highest point of view. All right, so what was I talking about? The five kinds of prana and then... Um, oh, I didn't finish the point I was making about the language of the Vedas. Um, prana is... Um, flows this energy that we absorb through breathing but not only but primarily through breathing flows through to be honest i forgot how many thousands of nadi nadi means a uh, stream could mean river like the district of nodia in bengal is where all the the ganges ramifies in all those streams that's why it's called nodia because it's full of nadis and uh, you could see them as nerves uh, you know, the nervous system. And there are two nadis that are uh, the main ones that go from the first chakra to the last one, which is here. The first one is between the anus and the genitals. So, on a, in a, you know, if you, see, if you sit erect, this, you know about the chakras, everybody knows about the chakras. So, the goal of uh, pranayama and yoga is to awaken this energy called Kundalini. Kundala means snake. Kundalini is feminine because feminine it's Shakti, it's an energy. And it goes like a snake because um, some people see it as our DNA, the ellipse of the DNA. So basically you turn on all of your DNA and all of your potential on a physical level when you can awaken the Kundalini and go from the first chakra all the way to the seventh. So, we were talking about the physicality of prana. It's a very, very physical approach. Even if it has a transcendental goal, it's just the very beginning of transcendence. The goal of yoga is um, beyond matter, but not too much, not too far in. We'll see that uh, in the future. But uh, I'm opening too many parentheses here. But anyway... Talk, talking about pranayama cannot be done outside of a yogic context. Pranayama is a limb of Ashtanga Yoga. So, it's not like you can just extrapolate pranayama. And uh, there's a lot of talk of uh, breath work in the West. They take the principles of pranayama and uh, 
you know Americans, they take there's something good and they have to make it better. No criticism there. I'm about to um, participate in one of these things with uh, Muralidhar who is here and who is uh, diving deeper and deeper into these uh, into this breath work and uh, his giving, his learning how to give seminars. But you know the westerns, the the Western people have um, tapped from pranayama and other experiences, and they're making it a whole science and stuff. Um, kind of doing away with the spiritual aspect of it. But going back to pranayama, within couch in the Vedic, um, you know, context, pranayama is a limb of a yoga, and people shouldn't forget that it starts with yama and niyama you should have a special diet you should be a brahmachari that's the first disqualifier one of the first things my guru Maharaj says when he extols the the glories of bhakti as opposed to jnana yoga and karma is that to be a yogi you have to be a brahmachari you need to contain your semen because it's the physical semen or semen or, or um, sexual energy because, uh, you know, it applies to women as much as men. But you need to contain that sexual energy because it's at the very base of this kundalini that we were talking about. So the first disqualifier, and I have been listening to presentations on videos and podcasts on pranayama, and one was very categorical. It's like, if you have sex, if you cannot contain your sexual energy, your pranayama is useless. <laughs> okay. If you're not focused on your breathing in and out, your pranayama is useless. And um, so that's why I said it's a big disqualifier. It can help you in the pursuit of bhakti, but it's also a distraction. Our acharyas say that pranayama is a distraction because, you know, you get involved so heavily into this practice, like we were saying last time, um, how I, one of the things I notice is that in yoga, they want to be the master of their minds, their bodies, and by extension, the whole world, because you can uh, develop siddhis, you can do amazing things if you can master yoga. But it's over lifetimes, especially in this age where people live on average 100 years. Those who can manage to do something, levitate or do whatever, heal people, in this lifetime, they haven't started in this lifetime. So it's a very, very absorbing pursuit and a very physical one. And um, if our goal is to be absorbing Krishna and in, in the you know pure transcendence and become Krishna consciousness, in that way you can understand how our acharyas kind of discourage us to focus on uh, from focusing on pranayama and any yogic pursuit, let alone the uh, pride, the sense of power that can come from uh, these yogic practices. So I was saying the last time I was noticing how to be a yogi and master your mind and senses and the world, you end up becoming a slave to this practice, waking up very early in the morning, morning to any, do austerities, having a certain diet, not being able to have a sex life, etc., etc., whereas bhakti in comparison, <laughs> if you want to you know, make it very simple, is all about chanting, uh, singing, dancing, eating well, and having friends and hanging out with your pals who are like-minded. So you can see the, 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 contra the contrast, is, uh, the comparison is a stark one. And um, so I noticed how physical it is. Uh, like I said, if you do this while having sex at the same time, while not being focused, it's all for naught. Whereas bhakti, if you do it while being distracted, you will still have some result, some success. We don't advise that, but that is the power of bhakti because it's not us wanting to be the master of matter, which can be done in a way. It's, just, it's us acknowledging who the master is, who the owner is, who the source of everything is, and taking the subordinate position, um, which is our constitutional position, because there can only be one center and we are in a circumference. And then by situating ourselves in the circumference, we focus on the center, and then we realize, as Sridharmar says in a very mind-spinning way, that the center is everywhere. 
because again we're talking about the absolute but anyway um so um in bhakti we acknowledge who the owner is who the source is and we take our due position of subordinate and we and we sort of benefit from all the omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence of god plus much more um and we don't have to be uh, trapped in all the uh, trappings of the sadhana of a yogi and like i said it's very very physical like in karma yoga if you do the sacrifices wrong if you say a, a word wrong you don't have the achieved result and reading about yoga and karma no, i'm sorry yoga uh, and uh, pranayama ashtanga yoga it's very very physical i used to have a more romantic vi vision of yoga because it's a spiritual path but it is very physical and i can see how in the west again <laughs> western mentality is always about enhancing and or in a in a way desacralizing just taking the sacred out of everything make christmas a consumeristic occasion saint patrick's day just as long as you can drink or have fun or just you know serve your own purposes but anyway so nowadays with yoga we see i've seen everything latex yoga beer yoga like at every asana you have a sip i don't even know if they're jokes or they believe it naked yoga goat yoga and even without any of that yoga is just um it's just gymnastics gymnastics that makes you make you feel good uh because they have this like breathing and that they, they affect your mind too much more than the endorphins you would get from any other physical activity but no it's a spiritual uh, path and while being a, a spiritual path it's just very physical i just realized how like i said there's yama niyama and then there is asanas so let's go in order ashtanga yoga means eight limbs yama niyama asanas uh, pranayama dharana dhyana and samadhi i guess not yama niyama what is it yama niyama asanas oh um pratyahara goes before or after pranayama i can't remember and then pranayama dharana dhyana and uh, samadhi and you cannot extrapolate breathing for your own purposes if you haven't done the the previous ones that's why i said you got to be a celibate and, and and contain your energy your sexual energy which is well the first representation of this energy that we were talking about um otherwise it's all it's all wasted in a way and um so what i'll be talking about next week will be about the realizations the insights we can have as uh Gaudiya vaishnavas and spiritualists and also the 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 benefit that we can draw from that now we're talking about the technicalities the physicalities of pranayama and in a way the negative aspect like i said it's a distraction it's very limiting it's um it's uh um, yeah limiting because like i started to say and i never finished it's very very physical it really makes you realize how your body is just a machine a physiological machine with valves with uh, you know we have our battery which is the um, the solar plexus and then we have our air filter which is the lungs we have the fuel which is well the blood in a way like the the food and the and the air and everything it, it's all to feed the blood that feeds the organs and then we have the engine which is the heart and it stands to reason that if you don't close a valve all the way then you have leaks you have a, um you know a, a a decrease in the performance and yoga is very much about you have to have your back straight that's another thing if you don't have your back absolutely straight pranayama is useless all right to have your back straight you need to do all kinds of asanas a devotee once told me that asanas means if we start from the perceptions of our perception of ourselves as a soul the body is the seat of the soul it's the vehicle of the soul so asanas twist and and stretch the body like a, a beach chair 
you know, the beach here, you can like lie down, kick your feet up or midway, or you can like, you know, recline more or less and, and you can turn it into a, a bed, a cot. So that's what we're doing in a, with our body. We're making it a comfortable seat for the soul, which is wrapped by a mental body and wrapped by a physical body, so that the goal is to not move at all. Comfortable and symmetric, you know, you need to have balance in your body so that when you stand or sit still and you breathe all that to influence your mind, your nervous system and ultimately your mind, you um, don't get distracted by the electric, in a way, interf interference of a muscle tight in your neck. Or, you know, lack of balance means that you need to contract one muscle more than another to keep straight, to keep up. And that's all a distraction. It's like white noise. You want to be um, perfectly balanced, which also is a way of um, neutralizing the duality of the world, what pulls you in what direction or another. So this physical symmetry helps you, first of all, not feel any muscle tension. At some point you forget your body, you just act on the mental level, and then you go higher and higher, finer and finer in your absorption, so you start meditating and all that. It's like a sensory deprivation center, um, what is it called? Sensory deprivation chamber. I really, really wanted to do that experience. Apparently, you just float in water with Epsom salt that makes the water very thick. And it's a um, body temperature, so you're f floating in this water in pitch darkness, so you don't see anything, you don't hear anything because they're insonorized. You float in water at your own temperature, you don't perceive any wind, any heat, any cold. And so the brain starts to go crazy because it doesn't it loses this identification with the body you just don't move and so you start creating your own reality you start having visions and hearing things and because the brain kind of creates a reality um, you could see that you could you could say that at the beginning of the universe it was like Mahavishnu was in a sensory deprivation chamber deprivation chamber and then he started to dream about the whole material world never thought of that so anyway when I was in Naples I saw it advertised I was like oh I want to do it and it was horrible because it was inside of a gym I could hear people on the you know below me doing uh, hip-hop uh, aerobic or Zumba or whatever it was so I didn't have any experience I'm unlucky that way I can never have esoteric experiences but anyway the point is that you need to have um, asanas you cannot do pranayama if you haven't done and mastered asanas you want to have your body perfectly relaxed also because prana flows in a in a relaxed uh, body whenever you tense up you can't speak you can't you know you know heal or just do anything imagine um, anyway you got to be relaxed for prana to flow and, and do all the wonders that it does in your body from keeping you healthy to healing other people to developing siddhis and um, and whatnot. Now we're running out of time. Um, did I say everything I wanted to say? While I'm thinking about that, I can uh, ask you if there are any questions or comments, and uh, we can probably wrap it up. Yeah, I remembered one thing, one point that I didn't finish. So if there are, if there are not uh, questions in the chat or anybody who wants to unmute themselves I would go on let me see if on YouTube there's anything happening yeah one thing I didn't say was about um, the nadis the nadis I can't remember what the sound of the D is I think it's nadi but um, there is uh, two main ones Ida and Pingala which uh, from the first chakra go up and they meet at every chakra while they spiral up the body and they're called solar and uh, lunar and they're connected with um, uh, heat and cold and um, next time we'll talk about the duality how we can meditate on our breathing and have a lot of realizations on, on you know the, the, the reality that we live in 
all the way to spiritual realities, if the gods assist me, because it's a, it's a deep um, uh, topic, but I've been building up to that one. The third encounter would be what I really want to talk about. So uh, it sounds kind of like fantastical to talk about the sun and the moon, but then it turns out that science finds out that you know, if you, if you breathe through your nose, which is what you should always do in pranayama, it stimulates certain um, nerves. And that's why in pranayama it's important whether you breathe through your left nostril or right nostril, because one is connected or the air turbinating through one nostril, and uh, even if they all meet uh, in the lungs, one stimulates the... Um, can never remember sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So one stimulates one and the other one stimulates the other. And you can see how one of these nervous systems is all about action. So the fire, the heat of the sun that is invoked to express that it's about action, about reaction, like when you are in danger and you need, and there's like, you know, you hear an alarm, your body goes in a certain mode, which corresponds to a certain kind of breathing and which is governed by a certain part of the nervous system. And then there is the rest and digest part of the nervous system, which happens when you sleep, when you're at rest, when you don't feel in panic or under attack. So pranayama is also about being in charge of how you breathe. A lot of people breathe through their mouths. Uh, they sleep uh, with their mouth open. And maybe next time I'll tell you why I tape my mouth every night because breathing through your mouth is very bad. So in pranayama, you should breathe always, always through your nose. And um, one last thing I'll say is that, speaking of correlations, um, oh, there's a question, so maybe I'll save that. Let's see, I can't see the chat. So Greg says, is this is this the Greg, is this... Um, Ramamohan. Ramamohan, yeah, okay, welcome. I have a question. Can you please say something about breathing while chanting? Have you experimented at all with this? Thanks so much for this series. Hmm. Chanting, you mean japa or kirtan? Either way, I haven't paid too much um, mind um, to it. Um, no, not just yet. I'll be talking about that too. I'm, I'm a little running behind my own schedule, but I, I hope I'll be able to discuss everything in time. Um, as far as japa, all I can say about it is that some pranayama is recommended. Um, next time, maybe in the fourth encounter, we'll talk about all the Vedic quotations, who says what about pranayama, including our saints and acharyas, and where it's mentioned in the scriptures and stuff. So Vishwanath Chakravarti Thakur uh, discourages against uh, pranayama as a, as a distraction. But I think in Hari, Hari, Bhakti, um, Hari Bhakti Vilas, it says there is some pranayama um, uh, recommended before chanting because it stills your mind, it puts you in a meditative state. Most pranayama does. So I don't know about during japa or during kirtan, but uh, I know that it's recommended before. Um, as far as japa, uh, they say the best japa is in the mind. So as long as it goes on in the mind, that's good. Uh, I remember once I was pacing up and down and chanting loudly, which is how I prefer to chant. And uh, obviously by chanting you, you lose breath. So I was going Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. And then I took a breath in and then I went on Hare Ram, Hare Ram. And somebody was like, for some reason, he felt he had the need to say, ah, you skipped the Krishna part. I was like, well, no, I was breathing, but I was chanting in my mind. So let's be a little more dynamic about that. Um, so yeah, just breathe normally. What's important is that you chant in your mind. Um, I don't know if you were asking about chanting, like should you breathe in before or after or in between. Um, I wouldn't focus too much on that because you know there's nothing more transcendental than the Maha Mantra. No matter how you do it, you will always accrue some results. But like I said, I did read. I haven't investigated it yet because I'm really short of time. I didn't have a whole month to prepare about this month. But by, by the fourth encounter, I'll be talking about all the quotations and citations, and uh, I'll find this verse that says, what pranayama is um, recommended before japa. Now, 
Chitta Hari told me the other day that he was thinking Kirtan would be a way of controlling the breath. It's like how we engage the breath. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's fine. It's a way to see it. But um, first of all, like I said, pranayama is not a way of controlling the breath. It's a way of engaging the breath. But nobody really... Yeah, it's like saying, then you know, anything. We don't take prasadam, we... We eat, we don't eat, we take prasadam. You could say, we don't breathe, we do pranayama during kirtan, I guess. Uh, like, we're not obliged, we're not, you know, required to do pranayama, so... There's nothing wrong in saying that we do pranayama while doing kirtan, but you don't do it consciously. There's like, I mean, it's good enough if you're focused on the names of Krishna while doing kirtan. I don't, and like I said, if you don't breathe consciously, it doesn't really, you need to be really conscious. And I don't know of anybody who, during Kirtan, is conscious. Am I breathing out? Am I breathing in? You're just breathing. You're engaging your breathing, breath in devotional service, but that's as far as it goes, in my estimation. Okay, now we're really out of time. And uh, next time, like I said, it's going to be the the, the, the the core of what I meant to talk about. And I'll be trying to address all the loose odds and ends that I couldn't address this time. And um, I don't see any further questions or comments. I thank you for your patience, uh, both in relation to me and the way I speak and the theme, because, uh, again, I realize it's not the most transcendental, but if it can be of any help and inspiration, that's all I meant to do. And like I said, it was just one way to talk about Krishna, one way or another. And so thank you to everybody, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>